Hello, I'm Dave Vanderveen. This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. And um, if you haven't listened, listened to Kick Aspirational before, this is all about helping people break through barriers in their lives. I talk about stories from my own life, and I interview people about how they're breaking through barriers in theirs. Uh, this week, I wanted to do something special, unique, different. I wanted to talk about gratitude. It's the first week after Thanksgiving, and I've been in the middle of a lot of personal planning for the next year. I'm sorry. These podcasts have not been as consistent as they have been in the past. A lot going on right now at Vanderhalla at our home, um, which creates a sense of uncertainty. You know, when you're doing a lot of personal planning, you're thinking about big changes, what you do next. I'm kind of at a crossroads right now in my life and um, done a lot of great things, had a lot of great uh, outcomes, but uh, I don't sit still. I like to keep progressing. And uh, there are times and places where um, the journey you've been on is not the journey probably that's going to be the, the place that takes you where you need to go next. And um, so out of a lot of this uncertainty, it can be unsettling. Um, none of us knows what will happen tomorrow, let alone next year. And, and it never helps uh, you know, to be in negotiations with people from a place of negative emotions, especially fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So I've decided to deliberately focus on an alternative and contrary positive emotion. I've decided to focus on gratitude. Um, there's a lot to be grateful for. I certainly have plenty of things to be happy about. And no matter what, you know, it's, it's always easy when you're in the middle of some fight or battle or whatever you're thinking about, or maybe it's just a battle with yourself. What are we going to do next year? How are we going to make things different? How are we going to break through these barriers? You know, it's easy to get focused on the negative. What's wrong and 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 um, forget how many things are great, how many things are right, how many things are good in the world. And if you think about the idea of kick aspirational, it's all about breaking through barriers because you believe the world can be better, because you believe that on the other side of whatever is holding you back, you can create something that will reflect who you are to the world that the world actually wants. <laughs> a couple key elements there. So it's not about breaking into a castle to steal treasure. It's not about some you know, some kind of fixed uh, goodness that's out there waiting for us that's we're trying to take from somebody else. It's about breaking through what's holding us back from being our own best selves. And I think part of that belief is believing that we can create something better, that the universe rewards that sort of behavior, and that truth is something we make that reflects us and the world we inhabit, not something we discover out there fixed and waiting for us. When we're grateful, we view the world differently, right? I think that's that's kind of a simple... Uh, elegant uh, idea that that that's is that generous um, belief in the universe that this universe wants us to actually go forth and do something wonderful that shapes our gratitude. Um, we see the uncertainty as opportunity. We stop fearing doubt because we learn to love mystery. You know, perhaps we start to view the universe as a generous place, and then we can in turn learn to live generously, to, to give love, grace, and peace to others without looking for reciprocity. We can be love, we can be grace, and we can be peace to our neighbor, to people we meet, read about, and discover. We can be love to the world. I'd add we can be love particularly to people who want to hurt us, particularly to our enemies, particularly, you know, if you're the Hatfields, to the McCoys. The problem is that we're all made out of people. <laughs> we have the reptilian lizard brain that reacts subconsciously, and we have the cerebral cortex that allows us to deliberately reflect and correct behaviors we don't, uh, you know, that don't fit the life we want to live. We might not do it all the time, but we can direct our thoughts, emotions, and rational decision-making skills in a direction. 
It takes deliberate effort, I should add here. And, and through meditation and reflection, we can make incremental daily steps in a direction. I mean, sure, we might want to fall, but we might fall back into old habits. We might slip up in our path, but if we continue to, to meditate and reflect, we can generate progress. The reason I keep throwing meditation in there is I think it's, it's a lot more deliberate, quiet reflection and interior work than just, you know, than just reflection on its own. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a habit that really forces calming the outside noise calming everything that's trying to define you, calming your own interior demons that are trying to say this is who you are, and really looking at yourself as a, in, a, in an objective, separated way. There's lots of great books and tools and podcasts that help us practice living deliberately. The book Deep and Simple is one of my favorites. I've done a whole podcast on that. Last year, I recorded a podcast from a remote Indonesian surf camp um, just off Aceh, which is kind of northwest Sumatra, if you know the, the Indonesian archipelago. Um, where I was living simply in a grass hut on the beach. There were water buffalo literally just um, feet outside my door living in a creek, and I was looking at an A-frame point break just up the beach from where, I was, where my, my hut was. Um, it, was, it was an amazing place to get away. Uh, there was no TV, no ice, no AC. <laughs> you know, it was kind of lights out when the sun went down. It was a perfect place to disconnect from the world, do some interior work, meditate, read, surf my brains out, explore the islands and ocean outside me, as well as the vastness inside myself. I found deep and simple watching a documentary about Fred Rogers or Mr. Rogers to most of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s. And, and you know, I, I watched a few documentaries recently. I never really appreciated him when I was a kid. I mean, I watched Mr. Rogers. It was a good show. Um, but I never really appreciated what he was really doing. Um, I w- I've watched a few documentaries about Fred Rogers since. And, you know, there's a new film out now starring Tom Hanks about him. Check them out. They're w- totally worth watching. But, you know, what Fred Rogers did was he lived one of the most reflective and lives and practice a way of living, of helping children in particular, understand the world around them, embrace their feelings, reflect on their behaviors, and do better. When I discovered that Fred Rogers gave away the book Deep and Simple to people he met and cared about, I had to get a copy. The simple story of that book is that we can learn to meditate and reflect. We can begin to separate who we are from what we do, and we can learn to change how we behave. We can do better. <laughs> it isn't about being perfect. I mean, it's deliberately about not being perfect, I'd, I'd even add, or comparing how we're doing to others. It's about doing better on our next try. It's about living in this kind of in this growth mindset where hey, maybe you're not there yet, but you can keep refining and keep improving. Mm. Sorry, I'm having a cup of coffee. Um, I, was in, I was in Vienna about a month ago and met with a highly regarded personal trainer. A young guy who's got a great following and really has helped people break through a lot of physical barriers in their life when they're not, they don't feel like they're progressing when they're going to the gym or working out. Uh, he's really helped people isolate and figure out what's going on. Um, I didn't have any big problems, but I wanted to have an experience with him. He used a 13-point caliper method to measure body fat across various parts of my body. It's not necessarily about figuring out total body fat as much as it's about seeing where the fat is, you know, where it's distributed and, and what's that, what that's saying about you because your body will put fat in different parts of your body depending on, on how you're living and, and what's happening to you. 
Um, and so we were, and we were also doing some tests on different muscle groups, um, how they're working, what's firing, what's weak, and which needs development. So it's, you know, we all get in habits, and that shapes who we are physically, spiritually, mentally, etc. And I think, uh, you know, when you're actually doing these assessments, it's helping you look at where you've been, what you've been doing, and what you need to shift in order to get really complementary muscle groups and, and, and body parts working right. Um, I work with a lot of trainers and sports, you know, sports nutrition experts, and this was really helpful and an interesting exercise for me. It's always kind of funny to me when a professional does an assessment and states the obvious. The trainer noticed that although I'm generally in pretty good shape for a 50-year-old, I was carrying a little extra fat around my belly. And he said, you know, he's like, oh, Austrian, are you stressed a lot? <laughs> and I said, yeah, you know, yeah, of course. And he said, I'm traveling all the time. And I said, if I travel a lot, and I said, yeah. And then he said, the extra fat, you know, the extra fat around your lower belly is likely related to cortisol production. Sorry, that's probably not a very good Austrian accent. But, you know, he's basically saying when you're in a state of stress, when, when cortisol is being produced, then your body can have an insulin response to almost anything you ingest. So, you know, never eat when you're stressed is a simple example. The trainer went on to say that when we fly at altitude, so I'm flying tons, you know, I'm flying all around the world all the time, our bodies undergo a lot of stress because of how high we are, given we're in a pressurized cabin to protect us and we're breathing added oxygen, but flying is stressful and exposes us to the equivalent of multiple chest x-rays. He said that when we had done a blood sugar test, he had done a blood sugar test on himself when he was flying, and when he consumed just pure whey protein, no sugar, no carbs, he still had an insulin spike. He still had a sugar response um, because of the cortisol being pumped because of the altitude he was flying at. So one of his simple suggestions was to me was to stop eating while I fly. And I said, you know, yeah, but I'm about to fly from Austria to Australia. It's more than 24 hours of flight. He said, (laughs) so he said to me, he goes, he goes, you can fast for 24 hours, try it. <laughs> like, he's like, yeah, I know, but, but you can do it. You know, so I did, I did. And, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't awful. Um, I, I made it. And I've generally avoided food on planes since then. Um, I've watched my stomach flatten. It worked. I'd add that I've also been fairly dedicated to drinking green tea with MCT oil in the mornings, you know, so you're getting those good fats and you're putting in those green tea catechins that help your body actually metabolize body fat. Um, and I've also added intermittent fasting, which is basically, you know, going from, I, I'm not really, you know, super uh, disciplined about it, but the simple thing that I try and do at least three days a week, I'd say three to five, is I don't eat from dinner until, you know, lunch or past lunch. So 14 to 16 hours of not eating every day. And what that does is kind of remarkable. Um you know, it allows you to actually, well, you know, you're basically cutting out a meal, but you're also putting your body into the state where it's not just looking for carbs and, and simple, um, you know, simpler uh, carbohydrates and starches and things to, to get energy. It actually starts burning fat when you do those types of things, when you, when you give it more time to, to metabolize the harder to, the harder to use uh, fuel sources that your body's already storing as fat, you know, around it. So, um, you know, it's, it's been, uh, it's, it's been kind of fun. If I had to use, do some, um, get into some mental games too, you know, because look, we have abundance, we have things around us, we can eat as much as we want all the time. And, um, so to make this small change, um, you know, I not only stopped avoiding eating on planes, I also stopped avoiding eating, um, you know, 
when I, when I didn't want to be eating. And I had to create these mental games where the slight discomfort of hunger equates in my mind to the slight discomfort of working out, where I know when I work out, I'm going to get a result. So now I know when I feel hungry, that's also making me better. It's giving me the result I'm looking for. And I embrace it, celebrate it, and appreciate it rather than you know fight it or feel demotivated because I'm hungry. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm hungry. This is good. This is what I want. This is what I like. This is what's going to get me to this place I want to get to. Um, I will add that after a very festive Thanksgiving weekend, <laughs> it was probably like four or five days of Thanksgiving that involved multiple days of feasting, drinking, and throwing the whole fasting and working out things out the window. I did do some hiking and surfing, but no real workouts. I stepped on the scale and was over 200 pounds. Um, to put it in perspective, my ideal weight is probably 190 to 195. And the things we measure, we tend to improve. When I saw the weight gain, and you know, that frankly, I knew it was inevitable, Um, but wasn't really what I wanted, I celebrated the opportunity to change my eating, drinking, and moving again. Within a few days of intermittent fasting and working out every day, including surfing and hiking sessions, I like to get like a few different activities in in a day. I was back down into the low 190s. And because I've created new habits and behaviors, my body falls back into the rhythms that bring me where I want to go. So adapting the physical body is is one way we can change ourselves and our behaviors. And it's also true of our emotions and mental states. Um, You know, the mind and body are connected. When we generate stress, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, or otherwise, our body pumps cortisol, among other changes. Um, You know, learning to breathe is a big deal. Check out Dr. Andrew Wheel, W-E-I-L, or or Wim Bender's YouTube videos on this. It's one simple and huge step. Deep breathing, box breathing, and breath observations and meditation are simple tools for much better health and well-being. They don't take much time, and they make tremendous differences in your blood pressure, in your your health and wellness, in your emotional state, in, in observing who you are and changing who you are. One of the other practices that's related to better mental health for me is being more thoughtful about what I'm posting on social media, how I'm deliberately showing gratitude to others in that space, and how I'm responding to the inevitable controversial posts and responses. I'm a big fan of controversy. I actually like it. I like fighting, and I like debating. And and I have to fight the urge to just dive into every fight and throw punches. From what I've been practicing this week... um, you know, first, I've learned to try and be more aware of the environment that I'm posting and what's going on around me and what ought I to be particularly thankful for right now. On rainy days, I was noticing how gray the sky and streams of light would be and how they'd break through and hit the water. I'd get up early, check the surf. I'd see the light hitting the plants and trees, the water. It was just stunning. I've posted some of those images. I mean, it's just beautiful mornings. And they're more beautiful when you pay attention to them, I'd add. Um, when I took the time to explore the various angles, exposures, and highlights, the images take on a beauty of their own. Um, one of the posts I made during Thanksgiving was about immigrants and how, like the Puritans, we're all pilgrims on a journey. And when we welcome strangers we encounter, when we welcome the other into our lives and live generously, the world becomes richer. It also helped me to reflect that, you know, my own family hasn't been here that long. My great-grandparents, grandparents, my wife's mother, they all immigrated. You know, you only have to go back a generation or two or three, and we were all from someplace else. And so for me to say, you know, no to another foreigner who wants to enter our country to help us become better, to add value, it's, it's foolishness. 
It's not what makes us great. What makes us great as a country, what makes people great is by adding other people, other people who want to come and add value. The fastest growing wealth groups in America are immigration, are immigrant groups in every generation. It's because it's people who come who aren't fixed, who have a growth mindset, who come to grow. We need people to remind us that and show us how to do that over and over and over again, every year and every generation, all the time. That is the only way the human population, human capital, is what will make America great again. Not a bunch of people who forgot where they came from. Um, so, of course, people wanted to comment about legal versus illegal immigration. People wanted to dissent and polarize the conversation. That's their right. That tells me about them. But it doesn't tell me anything about myself. Their response doesn't have to direct my engagement with them. I don't have to focus on where we disagree. I can respond, engage, and attempt to build bridges to highlight where we agree. My response to them says something about me. My response to them is my opportunity to show how I attempt to live and be love, grace, and peace. And no, I'm not perfect at it yet. And neither are you and neither is anyone. It's not about being perfect or doing it right. It's about getting better. You know, one of my friends, Susie Alganian, commented, and she, 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 she gave me a really lovely compliment. I don't have it here to read to you, but she said something effective, you know, that she appreciated my voice and she appreciated the gratitude and, and that, you know, she's Baha'i. And, and, and I think that in, in general, people who come from a Baha'i background, a background where they, they're focusing on what makes views of the universe the same rather than different. They focus on grateful living and and on um, helping people who need help get to the next phase. Uh, she just she thanked me for the post and, and she thanked me for my voice and it touched me that uh, one that that she read it and two that she cared enough to write a, a, a grateful comment back to me. I mean to me that's when when a, a statement about gratitude actually makes a difference when other people notice it and are grateful as well, when we build gratitude around us. One of the projects that I'm involved in is a, is a project called Same God Film. It's where I'm an executive producer. It's airing on uh, national television this week. Linda Midget produced it with a, um, with a great team. Uh, I'll get into that, but it, it's, it comes out December 10th via Worldwide Television, which is an organization that kind of aggregates PBS programming networks. It reaches about 84% of televisions in America. We've been screening Same God Film at major art film festi- at major film festivals. We we actually premiered at the Los Angeles Film Festival, um, the LA Film Festival, and university campuses. We've probably done I don't know over a hundred screenings all over the world now, and uh, for the past two years prior to this national release, and it's had great results. We've sold out all over the place, had to add multiple screenings at places where we've done screenings because more people wanted to come than we could provide seats for. And the people who came stayed after to to have discussions, to talk about the ideas in the film. I mean, literally three quarters to, you know, 80, 90% of the people who come to these screenings want to stay and talk about it, which means we're making a difference. We're getting the ideas on the table and we're having really healthy, positive discussions about the film. Same God Film is about a Wheaton College professor, Dr. Larisha Hawkins, who taught political science at a small Christian college in suburban Illinois that was founded by abolitionists, people who were anti-slavery, you know, when it was still legal in the United States, who were united in their values that bringing the kingdom of God into this world required that we practice social justice. You know, if you're really serious about bringing heaven to earth, you got to make sure that you're making the world a better place. Um, At the same time, much of the focus was around helping slaves escape the South and get to Canada. 
Wheaton College was literally a stop on the Underground Railroad. Although the city of Wheaton was an abolitionist town, people caught uh, aiding slaves back in you know pre-Civil War America could be imprisoned for up to seven years and fined over $1,000, which was a lot of money in the 1800s. Wheaton was the first college in Illinois to admit and graduate an African-American. It was after the Civil War. And Dr. Hawkins, Dr. Larisha Hawkins, was the first African-American woman to be granted tenure at that school as she was teaching in the political science department. Um, she was raised, by the way, in Oklahoma. Her grandfather was a, was a pastor. Her family went to church twice on Sunday. She was raised in the church. I mean, there was uh, never a question about whether or not Larisha Hawkins was a good Christian woman. Um, but, but, you know, Do- uh, Dr. Hawkins um, uh, was teaching political science at this Christian college dedicated to, to practicing their faith. And the way that Larisha asked her students to apply their faith to politics was via social justice. More specifically, embodied solidarity or putting your body into harm's way between an unjust persecutor and the powerless, typically people in minority power positions. Larisha's students decided that as they entered the season of Advent, the season when the Christian church deliberately opens its doors to the world and celebrates the incarnation, the idea of God becoming man and living among us, that they would impact you know, with an embodied solidarity, uh, th- that they would make an impact with embodied solidarity with Muslim women, that they would put their bodies in between um, the uh, Muslim women and the people trying to persecute them. Muslim women often wear head coverings. They're called hijabs that highlight their modesty in public. It also highlights that they are Muslim and that, and that at a time when the current U.S. president has been singling out Muslims for special immigration limitations, illegally I might add, it seems to empower people who are naturally bigoted towards Muslims to persecute them as well. Muslim women have been commenting on the rise in racist and bigoted comments directed towards them in the past few years. Given this tension and sensitivity, female students at Wheaton College decided to act in embodied solidarity with Muslim women and wear hijabs during Advent after checking with the local mosque if it was cool if they did that. Was this going to offend you? And the mosque was like, no, we would love it. We would appreciate it. Thank you. The post. Um, so Dr. Hawkins liked this idea. She loved what the students were doing and decided she'd like to join her students and do the same. So before Christmas final, she put a scarf on her head, took a selfie, wrote a comment about being in embodied solidarity with Muslim women because she said, as Pope Francis says, we are all people of the book. Pope Francis being, of course, the head of more than 50% of Christians in the world, Roman Catholic Christians. The post went viral and not in a positive way. Dr. Hawkins was suspended. It became a national scandal for Wheaton and Dr. Hawkins and Wheaton ended their relationship. She was forced out. Linda Midget is a friend from Wheaton College, where I also went to school, and I was also forced out (laughs) after three years, who has won Emmys for her television production. She reached out to me and suggested that we start filming a documentary about Dr. Hawkins as this story started to unfold, literally while it was going on. I chipped in with another Wheaton alumnus, Kathy Boldhouse-Treat, and we started making the movie. So this week, as we close in on our national launch on the 10th of December, Pope Francis also made waves by hosting peace meetings between Israel and Palestine, Israeli and Palestinian leaders that included a prayer vigil in the Vatican where Muslims and Christians prayed together to the God of Abraham in their own traditions. It was so surprising and timely. Frankly, it felt providential that I posted about Pope Francis and Same God film and thanked the Pope for breaking some rules to be a bigger example of love, grace, and peace to the world.
there were many positive responses. You know, I always love it too. There's people who want to argue about whether or not Christianity, Islam, and Judaism are the same or different, whether or not they view God the same or differently. And I'm always like, no one's arguing that. Of course, those faith traditions view God differently. Of course, they practice it differently. But the point is that we share this common, this common origin story. We all share the God of Abraham. We all share Abraham as our, as our, you know, salvic father and the God that Abraham worshiped. There was only one God he was worshiping. He wasn't worshiping three gods. He wasn't worshiping a Jewish God and a Christian God and Islamic God. And, you know, I like to point out, hey, even within the faith traditions, people can't agree on, on how that God you know, it should be adored and worshipped and and what are the attributes of that God. So, the fact that people disagree about God isn't interesting. Of course they do. No one's arguing that. That's the dumbest argument on earth. What we're talking about is how we're the same. And what's really interesting is that these three really different faith traditions share the same origin story. We share the same Salvic father. We share Abraham and we share the God that Abraham started with, that he brought to the world. Of course, different cultures are going to have different views of that God. And I'm not trying to argue about which one's better or worse or whether or not your way is the only way. Hey, your, your way is the only way. Good luck, man. Um, <laughs> you know, sure are lucky to be born where you were with the, with the parents you had who told you all about that God. But, you know, maybe the rest of us are trying to figure it out and have a lot of questions. And maybe it's okay to ask those questions, too. Don't be afraid of the uncertainty. Don't be afraid to embrace the doubt. And so, anyways... Uh, um, Probably the worst question I got, and I think there are bad questions. I think sometimes the questions show us more about the person than they wish to unveil. But there was a question I got that said, you know, so the Christians are praying, you know, and Jews are, the Christians and um, Muslims are praying together at the Vatican. Was it reciprocal? Meaning, did the, did the, um, did, do mosques now allow Christian prayer or something? To me, it was like the most ridiculous question. It was totally missing the point. Um, I felt myself flaring a little bit, and I, rather than responding kind, I commented that I thought this question sort of missed the point, that it might be the same sort of question a Hatfield might ask a McCoy. <laughs> like, okay, well, the McCoys are laying down their guns. Are the Hatfields laying down their guns? You know, because if they're not, we're not. Well, yeah, that's how you keep a civil war going, by the way. Um, the point, as I understood it, of Pope Francis inviting peace talks to two people groups that haven't been able to get along since the 40s, um, and an ecumenical prayer vigil into the Vatican had absolutely nothing to do with getting Christian prayers into mosques. Some might argue that in mosques where Isa or Jesus, as, as Muslims called, called Jesus, where Isa is worshipped, there already are Christian-centered prayers happening, Christ, at least Christ-centered prayers, not Christian, not the, not the political religion that came out of uh, the followers of, of Jesus, but, but there are Christ-centered prayers, I would add, uh, in some of, those, some of those mosques. But that's sort of, you know, if, if, if you think about it, um, what, what Pope Francis was doing was opening up his church and extending unconditional love, sharing grace, and offering peace without looking for reciprocity. That was the point of it. It was, it was about unconditional love, unconditional grace, and unconditional peace that he was offering to these people who couldn't figure out how to get along. That's the sort of definition of unconditional love that we're called to live into the world as Christians, as far as I understand it. Ultimately, what I asked rather than told the person who seemed bent on a quid pro quo to offer love, grace, and peace, was to consider Jesus' behavior in the Gospels with Samaritans. 
You know, there were no Muslims in the world 2,000 years ago. <laughs> there was no, there, there was no uh, Muhammad yet. Um, it's actually unclear if there was a Jesus of Nazareth. I choose to believe there was a literal person, perhaps the Son of God, that fits that description and inspired the Gospels to be written and shared. But how that Jesus interacted with Samaritans, you know, if you actually believe that he was the Son of God, if you actually believe that he existed, um, I do. You don't have to, but I do. If you believe that and you read the gospel stories about how he interacted with Samaritans, uh, that may be one of the best examples of uh, uh, how we ought to embrace the other in the world. Um, It's probably the closest example of what we have of what God thinks about how we ought to behave and embrace brothers and sisters of the same book, for sure. The same God of Abraham who worshiped differently, you know, we've got the same God, even though we practice and worship our faiths differently. The Jews and Samaritans worshiped and practiced their faiths differently, even they, even though they worshiped the same God. And they had different beliefs about how we reach that God and how, even though we have a different lineage. The simple answer is that Jesus went out of his way to showcase that the Samaritans were the neighbors of the Jews, deserve their love, and would find their way to God, even if they didn't do it exactly as the Jews believed God seemed to dictate. What is that to you, Jesus seemed to say? You have your relationship, God, your way, and they have it theirs. Don't worry about it. Not your job. (laughs) You don't need to be in between them and their relationship with God. That's what they do. You need to focus on your own. What is it to you? One thing that Jesus did comment on was that we worship and love God and that we we worship and love our neighbor, especially the Samaritans. He extended that to the hated Romans as well. Even people who didn't share the same God, who had different gods. Um, Two laws, he said, keep it simple. (laughs) Love God, love your neighbor. That's it. And those two will be so hard, you'll hate it at first, but you can't help but melt into the love you practice. So that's my take on gratitude. We have to practice it. We have to practice unconditional love, grace, and offer peace to our neighbors, Um, especially the Hatfields if we're the McCoys, especially the Samaritans and Romans if we're the Hebrews, especially to the Palestinians and, and, you know, if we're the Israelis and vice versa. And if we're one or the other, we have to give it to the other. And if there are minority positions being persecuted among us, um, especially, you know, we need to put our bodies in, be- in between those those places. Uh, sorry, I'm not articulating this well. I'm getting a little emotional. But if we see persecution happening, especially to people who are minorities among us, and we're not in that mi- minority, you know, it's okay to put our bodies in between the people who are persecuting and the people who are being persecuted to try and live grace into the world. If somebody has wronged us, it's okay to love them back. It's maybe sometimes when we love them unconditionally, that unconditional love, that behavior will change the whole tone and the environment, and they will change as well. Although we don't, shouldn't do it with that expectation if that's what's coming back. When somebody's trolling us on social media, you don't have to troll them back. <clears throat> you don't have to stoop to that level. We don't have to be perfect at it. We don't have to be good at it. We just need to get better. We need to meditate. We need to reflect. And we need to figure out how we can be love, grace, and peace to the other. The reason I think we do it and the reason I think it's important, particularly on this podcast, is because I do think we can make the world a better place. Not because there's truth waiting out there for us to discover it, but because we can shape it, we can make it, and we can create the world we want it to be. If we're willing to break through barriers, break through what's holding us back, and become much better people ourselves first. The world and the universe is big, it is vast, it is generous, and we can create the world we want to live in.
This is the Kick It Aspirational Podcast. I would like to encourage you to to believe that none of us deserve grace, love, and peace, but we can be it to other people. We don't deserve it from a God who loves us, from our families that love us despite our failures, or our neighbors who we've wronged. But love anyway. Love without a quid pro quo. Love without reciprocity. Love without prostitution. (laughs) Don't look for something coming back. Offer grace freely. Be peace to the world. This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. It's not a spectator sport. I hope you find value in these, and I hope you don't disagree. I'm sorry. I hope you don't agree with everything I say. I hope you disagree. Heck, I don't always agree with myself. Please let me know what your thoughts are. Please feel free to share your disagreement. I will try and be grace and peace and love to you in response. And you can call me out if I'm not. Uh, My goal is, is that something I share in an interview or something that I say offers help to you to help you on your journey to break through your barriers and to find your path. Ultimately, I want you to become more to the world and to share your best self so that we can all be great together. Whatever you do this week, please, please, please be kick aspirational.